Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifices of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We pray with me. Father in heaven, cause us to guard our steps this morning as we enter into your house. May we listen fervently, be slow to speak, And give us hearts that are patient before you. We ask that you would be high and lifted up here in Lewis County by our worship and our praise this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. Our responsive reading comes from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Lift up your hearts. Each week, the church militant musters our ranks for worship. For the faithful elect, this assembling for battle equals total war. On Satan's domain of darkness. David speaks of this war in Psalm 68 when he declares, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let, all, let those also who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away, as wax melts before the fire. So let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But Let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. When Jesus, the Son of God, went forth to war, he cast down the prince of darkness and, in fact, told his disciples that he, quote, saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So while the devil 
may be a bound and defeated foe, his final imprisonment in the lake of fire still awaits. Until that final hour, he will continue to rage against the faithful in a futile attempt to deceive and discourage the elect. As we seek to be a faithful church, plowing and planting the gospel in the soil of Lewis County, let us not forget that we have long ago drawn the attention of the enemy. Our brother Elias Murky lies in a hospital bed in part because Satan would like nothing better than to see us falter in the face of suffering. To see us waver in our conviction that God is sovereign over all things. But we are baptized men and women and children. We have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that means we have been born, or rather reborn, to fight. As new creations, we bear the sword of the Spirit. We're clad in the armor of God, and we have been given a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Therefore, we fight without regard to our own life or liberty, because we are fighting for the glory of King Jesus, the only one in whom can be found true life and true liberty. And while our hearts have been struck with grief at this terrible accident, we will still worship joyfully in spirit and in truth. David just told us, let the righteous be glad. Satan has struck us in the face, and we have all felt his blow. But we will fearlessly worship bloody lip and all. We will sing. We will joyfully receive new members. We will hear the word preached. We will be fed by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. But there is a secret to fighting the devil, and it's one of the most powerful weapons in our arsenal. I'm referring to the act of confession of sin. Satan wants you. He wants you, beloved, to keep your sin secret. He wants you to leave your sin in the dark where it will be safe and can grow and take root and control you and destroy you. But we must root out any desire to hide our sin and must instead be constantly confessing our sin to God and one unto another. Confessed sin cannot grow. It cannot be used against us to control us. Confessed sin cannot destroy us because Jesus promises that if we confess our sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as you're able, will you kneel with me as we confess our sins together? Scripture says in Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. If you have your bulletins with you, will you pray with me out loud as we confess corporately together from the historic prayer you'll find in your bulletin. Pray with me. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture says in Psalm 32, verses 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ.
Now this morning's scripture for the message is out of Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in the daughter, into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Would you pray with me? Lord, grant us divinely amplified insight into your revealed word. May the voice of your servant today be faithful, obedient, and clear. May you anoint the hearts of those within earshot to receive the message and be strengthened, exhorted, and convicted of your love for us for us as well as increased knowledge of your mighty sovereignty over all the earth and its inhabitants. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Let's have a seat. Well, just when you think us, uh, Lord's Day can't get any more special than what we had last week, it's more special. And what a, what a comfort and what solace we have as we gather today to worship. As Joe said, whether or not we worship with a bloody lip or with a particular joy in our heart for an answered prayer that meets our certain expectations, but nonetheless we're here. And certainly we derive so much comfort from that. As Kay and I were preparing for worship this morning, and, is, and, and indeed worship, um, she turned to me just in a moment and said, you know, we're a sovereignty people. And certainly that's been the backdrop leading up to this moment right now when I ascend the, the old rugged pulpit here, the short one. And um, we are a people of, of the sovereignty of God. And we read over and over what, what man may, want, may uh, do for evil, God does for good. So as we, as we look at these things, there's a backdrop that's going on in these, these short, four short verses in Genesis, but I'd like to um, think about how, as it unfolds, how this flowing of the humanity in Genesis, um, certainly the revelation of God is paramount and foremost, but as this humanity, of, humanity unfolds in Genesis, it has, it has led us to March 27th. It has led us to Centralia, Washington, in Lewis County. It's led us here to be together and, and, to, and to be able to comfort one another and to rejoice with one another. It's led us here to, to welcome new, new folks as members, and it's, it's led us here to allow Barrett to usurp uh, Alice as the youngest one in our, in our body. So this is just an amazing thing. But when we look at this, as we, as we think about Genesis 6, you know, it's nice to, maybe nice to highlight just a few things uh, very quickly because it's been a while since I've been up here. And just a few minor things that we've already seen in just five short chapters of Genesis. We've seen God speaking the universe and all of life into existence. Okay, nothing real major there, right? We see God providing an almost indescribable garden for the father and mother of all mankind to dwell in harmony and fellowship with him. We see God establishing the institution of marriage, the ideal of marriage. 
We see God giving a simple commandment for our parents to obey and warning them the consequence of disobedience. We see the rebellion by Adam and Eve and God being true to his character and the warning he issued condemning man to death and banishment. We see God in his gracious love and mercy promising a redeemer to come and crush the head of the vile serpent who entered the garden with no other intent but to murder God's most prized creation. We see humanity divided immediately into two camps in the offspring of Adam. His first son, Cain, a God-hater who murders his brother, who was deemed righteous by his faith and worship of God. And although Abel had no offspring, God appointed a third son, Seth, to Adam and Eve. And it was Seth, it was by Seth that people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Five chapters. Not a very massive uh, physical portion of the Bible, but certainly just absolutely packed with uh, theological insight of this revelation of God and who he is, of not only a God who is, uh, has, has certain attributes that we did look at uh, in a little more depth before we even began, uh, before we even said in the beginning God. And now we come to chapter 6, and the short passage we'll look at today will more or less ex- begin to explain why God executes the severe judgment that he is going to administer to the earth and to the creatures of the planet. So the central theme of this pa- passage is the wickedness of the human race. And as we look at Genesis 6, these first four verses are transitional verses, and they prepare for the story of Noah and the flood that's going to follow. Unfortunately, um, as I keenly discovered in my preparation for this morning, the meaning of the first four verses is not necessarily self-evident. There's some difficult language in there and some uh, difficult notions. And they've raised questions that have literally been pursued and considered for centuries. So... um, I don't know what I mean by telling you that, but um, this is, I'm, I'm going to put forth some things this morning for you to consider, but as I, as I try to impress every time uh, I have the privilege in, uh, of coming up here, is we want to do, do our best to have a certain backdrop. All those things I, I listed um, about what brought us here, about what brought us to the God of the universe, the creator getting ready to administer and execute judgment against creation, we want to we maintain that backdrop in the back of our mind as we, as we look at these things. So no matter how confusing something may be, no matter, no matter how ambiguous it may be, we know the truth. And we're, we're free because we do know the truth. It's not a cliche. It's, it's the reality of our lives. And I, and, uh, I, want, I want us to really embrace that. So I want to go through the first four verses and then, and then finish with some, with some thoughts and messages that we can perhaps consider and take away. In verses 1 and 2 it says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Okay, so the first question looking at this portion is the identification of the sons of God. 
That's the first thing to consider, and it's very obvious that we need to look at that and consider that. Now, there's three different ideas about what that, what that means. The traditional Christian interpretation is that they are the Sethites, in other words, from the line of Seth, the offspring of the godly line of Seth. And that's a key thing. Remember a sermon or two ago in Genesis, we talked about uh, Augustine's reference to the city of God and then certainly uh, Cain building a city that was not a city of God, that was not a godly city. The earliest Jewish interpretation, maybe we'll call it interpretation number two, is um, that they are angelic beings, okay, that cohabited with uh, human women and had offspring. And there's also, the third one, there's also a discussion that refers to this royal tyrannical successors to Lamech who gathered harems. Um, This position was favored by the rabbis, particularly of the second century A.D., now, linguistically, all three of these interpretations can be defended. Okay, so as we're, as we're faced with that, we, we want to consider some things. And I'm gonna, I want to tell you, um, I don't want this necessarily to be a real didactic lecture or anything, but I'm going to give you the three key points in, inter- in hermeneutics or the interpretation of Scripture. The first key point is context. Okay, very simple to remember. The second key point is context. And then the third key point is context. Okay, so there's three points there. We, I, it takes me three to kind of get that into this egg right here sometimes. So all of them can be defended linguistically, so it kind of it matters how you, how you look at things, and not that you need to suspend belief or anything like that, but just press in and, and, and do maybe a little work. The Sethite interpretation best fits the immediately preceding context. Uh, it's a contrast to the curse-laden line of Cain and the godly line of Seth. So if sons of God denote Seth's line, then the daughters of man probably, specifically, refers to, to Canaanite women. Okay? And this understanding relates to how the two lines intermarry, resulting in a community of unprecedented wickedness. And one of the other things that that perhaps it has going for it is that the church fathers seem to adhere to this, uh, Augustine did, uh, to this line of reasoning, as well as the reformers Luther and Calvin. And they interpreted the sons of God as a reference to godly men or the righteous lineage of Seth. Now the second view, that being of angels, uh, it certainly has ancient support. Uh, but it seems it seems to contradict some statements that are made in the New Testament, uh, particularly Jesus' statement in, in uh, Mark 12 uh, that angels do not marry. Okay, and then it also doesn't explain why in the subsequent verses, particularly five and seven, and then beyond in Genesis six here, um, why that the judgment is going to be on man. There's no inclusion of angelic beings in that judgment that is, that is made reference to that we're fixing to see here in the flood, okay? And then the, the third interpretation explains the phrase, any they chose and matches that description to remember Lamech's actions in Genesis chapter 4. 
but it it lacks a lot of support, lacks a lot of ancient support, um, as this re this reasoning kind of demands that the sons of God are actually very ungodlike people. So, in my reading and studying, for whatever it's worth, okay, um, in my prayer, I tend to I am settled and I'm content to subscribe to the first interpretation that we're talking about the uh, Sethite line and the Canaanite line, but certainly there are also strong um, uh, arguments for the angelic interpretation too. And if we look at that, if we look at that portion of Scripture, we see a, a particular pattern here that is that just in just in three chapters is consistent with what we saw in chapter three. Okay, and that's these words here: saw, good, and took. And when we see good in in this verses one and two of, of Genesis six. The Hebrew term for attractive or beautiful is often rendered as good, okay? And so when we see this, their sin in chapter 6 repeats the pattern saw, good, took of the original sin in Genesis 3, verse 6. Let me share that with you. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we can kind of see that pattern and the consistency there in relative to sin. Okay? And the next, uh, my next sermon in uh, Genesis, we are going to uh, revisit for, for most of us in this room the doctrine of total depravity because it just is natural for that to occur with what's getting ready to happen in uh, verses 5, 6, and beyond. And when it says any they chose, it's not necessarily polygamy they're talking about, but it just may be, it, it's just ref, maybe referring to this intermarrying that's going on here. So God, remember, God made a promise about a seed, right? And the seed was going to do, accomplish something that, that has caused us and affected us to be here this morning. And God true, is true to his promises. In verse 3, as we kind of continue to go along through here, it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That's verse 3. And... God declares that his long-suffering with sinful humanity has come to an end. And he will no longer suspend judgment. Now, that's, a, uh, that's a, something to really think about, particularly in this day and age, based upon, just if nothing else, the, the nature of the conversations that we seem to be having with one another when we gather. You know, obviously, we talk about God's sovereignty, and we talk about the, the mercy and the glory of God and all those things are true. But often it, it becomes as well those, those, that understanding, that revelation, that truth about God, it, it ends up affecting us and it affects how we begin to see what's going on around, around the world, in our life. These very things here. So, sinful humanity coming to an end 
my goodness, we, we can look around and see, and see a, a stark or a very distinct, rather, comparison to what we know what was going on there, the things that were going on back in, in, in Genesis 6 here, leading up from the fall in 315 and up to where we're at now, the fact that uh, there is this thing called lawlessness, there's violence, there's, there's man-on-man violence and, and perpetration of all kinds of, of crime, and then in verse 4, we're going to see another reference to these, these men of renown, okay? So here we are. And our, when we talk about that, because it's important that we do talk, talk about it, and the thing, one of the things about being a Christian, I think, and this is, my, this is me talking, is that it's very important that we are able, as Christians, to define reality, and define reality... Uh, in the context of absolute truth, with the with the understanding that we don't live in a, in a culture that embraces ultimate, uh, absolute truth, we live in a culture that is totally relativistic, totally uh, humanistic, totally post um, what is it? Postmodern. Thank you, Joe. So at the beginning, right at verse three, it says, "Then the Lord said." You know, how powerful is that? And, and you know, no matter, what, no matter what we're doing, our heads should come up and, our, and we should be extremely piqued when it says, and then the Lord said, because the Lord's going to utter something. He's going to say something that's extremely important. We know that the whole Bible is inspired by God. It's God's, it's God's inerrant word. So we take every dot, every tittle in that book at face value, at, at, that it is true. That we're, we don't need to do any massaging or do any fabricating or do any synthesizing to it. That, is, that it's there. And it comes straight from God. The, the Bible itself tells us that. The thing that, that, that uh, we listen to and we look at. There's a special weight when it's pronounced from God's own mouth. And it says, it says Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever. That word abide it was, ended up being an interesting one for me, and I actually spent some time with that word um, because it's, it was very difficult. You know, I go to my old vines, uh, I go to my strongs, and I go to my vines, and I look, look for that, and there was some, uh, there was some difficulty in, in pinning it down specifically, okay? Um, it's a difficult word to translate exactly in the context that we're looking at. So we have these words, strive, contend, abide, that seem to fit that, okay, fit that verse, fit that statement. And as I was thinking about it, and I was doing the exegetical work of trying to figure out what, what word might best, what word we might best understand, as I was thinking about it, it made me... Um, think about just back off the word and look at look at the statement that God is making from the from His mouth. I will not contend with man forever. And I don't know the 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 thing that came into my mind was the episode in First Samuel of that really sad story about Eli and his sons. And most of us are familiar with that. And if you're not, I would invite you to, to check, to look at that. Okay, I don't have the time to do that exhaustively this morning. But um, the sad story of Eli and his two wayward, or sinful, or evil sons, uh, Phineas and Hophni. 
And then when Eli heard that his two sons had died in battle against the Philistines, and that the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and took it away from Israel, Eli fell backwards and, and broke his neck and died. And of course, Phineas's wife was pregnant and went into labor and bore a son whom she named Ichabod. And I suspect that uh, many of us in this room, uh, we, we know that there's, there's, there's typically, usually, something substantive in a name that we find, particularly in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, so we think about Ichabod and we look about it. And look, look about it. <laughs> look, <I'm, laughs> bear with me. Okay. That's a new word, by the way. Uh, the etymology is certainly uncertain, so... But you know, um, she named that child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark has been captured. And that was, that was a significant thing to these people. And for the Israelites, Ichabod, which means inglorious, for them it became a reality. So the verse goes on to say, in, and we're back to Genesis now, the verse goes on to say, for man is flesh. And when we see the word for, often it's, gonna, it's, a, it's giving us a reason for something that's being said and stated. So God says, I'm, I'm not going to strive, I'm not going to contend, I'm not going uh, to abide in man anymore. For man is flesh. And again, looking at that and considering that word flesh, we've, we've all looked at the word flesh and understand the context of that very often in the Bible. Um, and in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, and I think this is really important for us, for the message today uh, out of Genesis. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So what Paul is saying here is the flesh is incapable of reason. The flesh and we need to understand that we're not, we're, not talking about, we're not talking about being a born-again Christian. We're talking about flesh, corrupted flesh, that the, corrupt, the corruption of man and humanity. And um, as we go along, we see this, that man is incapable of reason. And this, think about it now. We're only in Genesis 6. What a travesty this is. That God created man imbued with reason, with a, which, with a mind that should have, should have allowed him to be far, far, far superior to the beasts and the animals that God created. And we should, man should be excelling over every creature on earth. Yet we see in Genesis 6, in this tran transitional portion before God executes his judgment on mankind, we see, we see man just absolutely debased and wicked. How grieved must God be with that? And so as, as I thought about that, I, I didn't need to spend a lot of time on necessarily in the word flesh, but the, the, there's a portion of Scripture that I want to read, and it's, it's, I think, eight or ten verses. Just listen to me, join me in the Bible if you want. But it's in, it's in Romans 1, a passage we're very, very familiar with. In verses 18 through 28, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is defining beautifully and perfectly idolatry. Therefore God gave, uh, therefore God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verses 26 now. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And verse 28, finally, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind or a reprobate mind to do what ought not to be done. So as we look at that passage, that is one of the, the, the passage is just loaded as we would expect from the apostle. And we see idolatry perfectly, perfectly identified and perfectly defined. When we, when we worship the creature rather than the creator, and we don't, need to look, we don't need to look very far, even in our own lives, of the things, that we, the things that we would have in our life that have certainly at least, if nothing else, the potential to supplant God as the one we worship. I always think of young folks, and, and, and when I was young and, and uh, uh, courting my wife, my beautiful wife, how much time I would prepare when I knew when we were just going to go to a movie or something. You know, I even I brushed my teeth and did all that kind of good stuff. But you know, I, I would prepare. I would prepare for that. But there's been times when I've, after being a born again, after being born again as a Christian. There's been times when I just showed up to church. There's been times when I have not prepared properly to come into the presence of God, to be, like, like Andrew said, to, to rejoice and, and have, have this beautiful, amazing, awesome taste of heaven. And I thank God that he has corrected me of that. that we, we have a good time Sunday morning getting ready to come here. And it's not that the truth is sought and cannot be found, but rather it's when confronted with the truth, which is clearly perceived, okay, fallen humanity seeks to hinder and obstruct its influence. They suppress truth. You don't suppress things you can't see. You might deny it, but when you start suppressing things, you're aware of them. And then there's, this, this, there's the three rejoinders that Paul uses, and God gave them up. God gave them up indicates judgment. Okay, maybe not, 
maybe not judgment on par uh, observationally as a flood, but judgment nonetheless. And it's a severe judgment in the, se- in the sense that in verse 24, 26, and 28, God gives them over and gives them up. It, it's the removal of divine restraints on both sinful actions and on their consequences. And then the final one in, in verse 28, and then the, the subsequent uh, verses that we see in Romans 1, this reprobate mind. People are classified having a reprobate mind that have some knowledge of God and perhaps know of his commandments. However, they live in pure lives and have no desire to please God. None. Zero. And those who have reprobate minds live corrupt and selfish lives. Sin is justified and acceptable to them. The reprobates are those whom God has rejected and has left to their own devices. So we see... We understand judgment, and we understand that God can execute judgment without incinerating a human being on the, in the moment and on the spot. We can see that there's an element of judgment when people are allowed and turned over by God when he removes the restraints and they're allowed to continue on in their sin. I had a good example for it, uh, but I'll, I'm going to move on. The verse goes on to say his days shall be 120 years, 120 years. And the context indicates that this most likely does not refer to a newly designated lifespan for man, although it could, okay, and I don't want to be real hardcore dogmatic about that. But it seems more likely a reference to how many years remain before God executes his righteous judgment upon man. So I actually had to get my calculator out. Man, I had to go find it first. Forget, forgetting that I have one on my phone now. <laughs> but I was remembering and thinking about Noah post-Diluvian. Remember the word Diluvian, everybody? After the flood. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So we have a reference to 120 years here for man. Noah lived 350 years. And then, so I, I said, you know, I want to look at that a little bit. So I went and jumped to Genesis 11 and there is a genealogy in there of eight generations, so I took all the lifespans of those guys, and I did a, did a mean, I guess it would be, or an average. And the average was 300 and, I wrote it down, 349 years. So it's not that God just didn't take his time, maybe, in bringing, because we know, we know the psalm tells us that the age of man is going to be 70 years. Okay, and I'm getting nervous about that. But anyway... <laughs> Um, it's like so anyway what I'm saying is is that the likelihood is God is saying his days shall be 120 years perhaps 120 years before this flood is going to come and when God delays these things what's what's God demonstrating he's demonstrating his grace he's he's demonstrating he's tarrying and, and, and giving people an opportunity because you have to imagine people were walking by and watching this massive thing being constructed and the righteous and faithful Noah doing what he's supposed to do despite all the ridicule and everything else. You know, kind of a Genesis ancient sword and a trowel moment, if you will. Then we get to verse 4. 
says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughter into the daughters of man and they bore children of them. These were the mighty men of, who were of old, the men of renown. Now, here's where I really ran into a, a, you know, a lot of challenge in, in the literature out there. And um, there's a lot of ambiguity as to the etymology of this uh, this word. And etymology just means der- the study of the derivation of words. Um, we know that there's another reference in Numbers 13 to ne- the, ne- the Nephilim. And it's likely not the same group, because if it was, that means the Nephilim would have survived the flood, for one thing, right off the bat. But remember when the Nephilim were described in Numbers, um, they're not listed... When we think about the, that, that group, the Nephilim, as, as identified in Numbers, they're not described in Deuteronomy in the, in the Canaanite uh, genealogies at all. It's mostly, you know, what I think, what, what I believe it is, uh, based upon reading a variety of sources, um, the faithless spies, the faithless spies, counted all the inhabitants of Canaan as um, formidable impediments. So perhaps the best consideration is that the reference to the Nephilim in Numbers now I'm talking about is a, it's just a scare tactic by these cowards um, to try to make their case before the ruling, ruling uh, authorities before entering the promised land of God. And, of course, we know we have the two holdouts who said, no, we, we, we're going to, you know, echoing what, you know, thinking about what David said uh, subsequently to them, you know, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that challenges the armies of the living God? So the final, the Nephilim here seem to be another identified segment of an overall population that's just extremely violent and lawless uh, in this extremely violent and lawless world. I, I really don't have anything much more to offer you all this morning than that. There's a final part in verse 4 that talks about the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so as I looked at that and dug into that a little bit, I came across a portion in Calvin's commentary that address, addresses this part of Scripture. So actually, I'm just going to, I want to read what Calvin has to say. So here's, here's what Calvin says, quote, Moses adds, they were men of renown by which he intimates that they boasted of their wickedness and were what are called honorable robbers. Remember Lamech, of course. Nor is it to be doubted that they had something more excellent than the common people, which procured them favor and glory in the world. Nevertheless, under that magnificent title of heroes, they cruelly exercised dominion and acquired power and fame for themselves by injuring and oppressing their brethren, end quote. And that's all I really want to say about that at this moment, because I'm going to clo- I want to close the message right now. But I want, I'm going to come back to a portion of what Calvin just said um, as we think about this, these first four verses. And I'll, I'll confess it was not my intention to just do one through four. I was going to do a larger portion of chapter six, but there, there was just too much. Um, and we want to we want to be faithful, and we want to um, do justice to the Word of God because, like I said, every dot in it, every tittle, everything 
and it is vital for us. So as we close, there are a lot of details to consider in these four short verses. And when we are presented with information such as this, the question often becomes, well, what's the point of all this, and how does it affect how I understand God, the rest of Scripture, and as well the doctrine of man? Well, first and foremost, I'm, I'm going to be a bit redundant here, based upon some things I said earlier this, this, this morning, almost said this evening. Uh, first and foremost, God's attributes shine through in these four verses. And I don't think you really have to go digging very hard to, to see it, okay? We see his holiness, just in, the, in verse 3 alone. We see, we, we, we understand, because we understand leading up here, we understand the holiness of God, and then by virtue of all 66 book, uh, books of the Bible, the revelation of God to us in our lives, we, know, we, we begin to understand his holiness. And therein lies the rub for humanity, period, is this holiness of God. And that's a cornerstone. It's a cornerstone attribute of his. But also righteousness. And righteousness, we, when we talk about the righteousness of God, we're talking about God's absolute intolerance of sin. So we've, we've, got, a, we've, got, a, we've got a whole world full of people who are just sinning left and right, who have no, have, have no reverence for God except for a remnant. And there's always a remnant. Judgment and wrath, we see that here. We see that coming for sure, but in, in the moment. That, that when God issues that decree, I will no longer contend with man, that, that's not a suggestion. It's not, well, you know, try to do better. No, he's, he's making a statement. We see God's patience and forbearance. We see his grief over sin. And we also see that God keeps his promises. He institutes the line of Seth, in chapter 5, and despite the universal wickedness of the world, he will, God will ultimately continue to prepare the way for the seed of the promise, who will crush the head of Satan and conquer death. That's, that's the thing that makes our heart leap. That's the thing that, 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 makes it, that gives us the strength we, we have. And certainly we look back with hindsight, but just think about, think about that here as we look so early on in such an, an abysmal and dismal setting that God is faithful and he keeps his promises. We need to hang on. We, we hang on to that. We do hang on to that. And we talk about his promises all the time because they're so vital for us. You know what? Fox News or whoever, Chicken Noodle News or whoever out there, they're going to tell you all kinds of things. They're going to tell you how you should think. They're going to not, no, excuse me, I got that backwards. They're going to tell you what to think. But we know our God is sovereign, and as my wife said, and as Joe said, and as the men praying said, our God is sovereign. There's, like R.C. Sproul said, there is, not a, there is not a random molecule in this universe. God has control over every single thing. And as we continue to think about certain aspects of the verses today, there are some other things to consider. When we think of the Sethite line intermarrying with the corrupt Canaanite line, we see the resultant spiral in the wickedness. Okay, And, and as we think about what's going on early in Genesis, we're also, we also, in the back of our mind, have this understanding of what's going to be happening, happening with the nation of Israel. As God chooses his people and he separates and segregates his people, as he prepares his people and keep, wants to keep them pure. 
And we see many instances in the Bible where God commands Israel to do certain things with the intention of keeping them pure. And they, see, they seem harsh. And they, seem, they, they challenge us. Because they, they seem heartless. I want you to eradicate this, this group. I don't even want their pets to remain alive. And it harkens back to the holiness and righteousness of God. And if you don't like that, then you need to pause where you're at and you got to deal with it, folks. You just do. But we see God do that, and we see Israel often disregard these orders much to their dismay. You know, we can draw a serious application for ourselves this morning, especially for our younger folks, as they consider courtship and marriage. Listen up, kids. There's a reason that your folks want you to be equally yoked. There's a reason for it. They want you to be equally yoked with another believer. No matter how attractive the other person may be, no matter how nice they may be, no matter how, many, how good their grades are in school or whatever, if they don't belong to Christ, be their friend, be Christ-like, but they're ruled out. Okay? Hear me. Because I'm going to tell you, I've seen it time and time again. A Christian is attracted to a non-Christian, an ungodly person, someone who's coarse and selfish and abusive. Talking about adults now. And they think that marrying them will rehabilitate their character and nature. And I've seen it time and time again, the utter misery and failure and despair in in this line of reasoning. Please, please hear me loud and clear. Remember Jeremiah 13, he said the leopard doesn't change its spots. You know, how, how arrogant is it to think that just by virtue of someone marrying you, a Christian, a solid Christian believer who's an unbeliever, who, who in, before you're married has been rude to you and coarse, maybe even uh, violent or whatever, how arrogant is it to think that just by virtue of marrying you and joining with you that you're going to change them? So we need to be circumspect on that, and you need to listen to your parents, okay? That, that's a message this morning as well. That's an application we're drawing from them. And you know how many churches today are Ichabod? How many evangelical churches in the land, in the world, are Ichabod? <laughs> Due to sin and disobedience and idolatry. And as I pondered the quote by Calvin, especially this portion here, I'm going to repeat it very quickly here. It says, Under the magnificent title of heroes, they cruelly exercised dominion and acquired power and fame for themselves by injuring and oppressing their brethren. Certain names managed to make their way. Certain names, when I read that, came to the forefront of my mind. And they're names that we're all familiar with and that would come to the forefront of your mind as you read our, one of our, uh, our, our brother John Calvin. Names like Bill Gates or George Soros, Putin, and the list is too long and I'm not going to give them any more airtime because you know what I'm talking about. These people who are, who are, who are nothing more than puppets of the, of the devil. And they disguise it very well through this massive worldly immunization program or whatever it happens to be. But we know the truth. 
We look through the lens of the cross, and our Savior is, is the one who inhabits us. The Holy Spirit of God is in us, so we know the truth. And we can see through their wicked lies. We can see through their duplicitousness and their disingenuousness. Kind words for that they are liars and they are thieves and they are murderers. We can see through that. And finally, let us joyfully remember that Christians are not subject to reprobate minds. We need to remember that. We need to remember in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 17, when Paul says, you know, we're new creatures. Behold, the old is gone. Now, he still, he still wants, he still wants, he clinging to us. He still, we still hear him calling our name on the other side. Hey, don't you remember, Les, all the good times? No, all I remember is misery and despair. All I know now is even in the midst of, of tragedy and the things that we're facing and, 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 and knowing how to have joy in our hearts in the midst of tragedy, that's, that's, what, we're, that's what we have now. I'd like to end with a portion of Psalm 94, if you'd indulge me, just for just one more minute here. Verses 8 through 11, and, and uh, Kay was uh, playing, trying... Uh, did I say trying? Kay was, Kay was playing today's song on the piano. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Kay was, Kay was doing a marvelous job playing this, the, the song, Psalm 94, on the piano last, last night, or yesterday afternoon, actually. And I was listening to it, and I was, I was looking at the words, and I said, you know, those words are great to just kind of close, this, close the message today. But then I said, well, let me go right to Psalm 94. So here we are in 8, 8 through 11. And I just want you to listen to this. It, it, it's in keeping with where we're at. It says, understand, O dullest of the peoples. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear does not hear. He who formed the eye does, not, does he not see. He who disciplines the nations does he not rebuke. He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man and that they are but a breath. Listen, if you're, if you're here today and, and, and you don't know Christ, you need to know this. You need to know this. That Christ is your creator. He's, he's, he's the one, he is the, the creator and he is God and the God of this universe. And if you don't know Christ, you are no different than the people that we have been talking about and describing in this, in this passage and in this message today. And if that offends you, I'm not sorry. But the thing is, the gospel is called good news for a reason. Because as, as terrible and as harsh as that is, that message may be, listen, folks, I have good news for you. Just amazingly good news. So seek, seek anybody in here who's a Christian. Seek one of the elders or whatever if you have any questions. Except for Brian. Anyway, let's pray. Lord, you have made the way for each of us to be here in this specific place, in this specific time, and delivered unto us this specific message. Let us keep the message today of who you are and who we are in you. Lord, let that truth remain close to our hearts and remainder for the remainder of this upcoming week. Thank you, Lord. And we pray in Jesus' mighty name and all his people say, Amen. Amen.
Hear the charge this morning. We are of the lineage of the faithful seed, the children of the promise. Remain faithful to God in all that you do. Now receive the benediction from Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and the people of God say, Amen. Amen.